Now, analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, the Woodford Show got an exciting lineup today. Uh, we're going to talk about all sorts of things, including diving back into the controversy at the legislature. We'll talk about the revamped Health Canada Food Guide, uh, as well as that big rail expansion playing out uh, just to our north here in Kamloops. But first, our weekly civic update with the Mayor of Kamloops, Ken Christian, who's with me in studio. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, Shane. How are you? I'm great. Yeah? I'm great today. No council meeting this week, so what do you do with all that extra time? Yeah, well, uh, there isn't a council meeting because uh, council are headed to Kelowna, actually, for the local government right. leadership academy. So, uh, And interestingly enough, uh, myself and Maria Mazota are uh, speaking uh, tomorrow, and Kathy Humphrey, our uh, chief financial officer, is speaking on Friday. So, you know, we have uh, talented staff that are sought after for uh, these kinds of opportunities, oh, I guess. perfect. There we go. Okay, so a couple of issues to run down with you. I'll start at the top. Uh, the big news last week, of course, is this decision to not go ahead with the BCLC headquarters uh, rebuild in downtown Kamloops. Uh, you came out and said, listen, I'm, this is disappointing, uh, yada, yada, yada. We went to uh, all the reaction. Uh, I took note, it was interesting, because usually you would get along pretty well with Peter Millibar and Todd Stone, but both the Kamloops MLAs seem to take issue with your reaction. Peter Millibar saying twice in our station that we need a stronger reaction from local businesses and politicians than they're disappointed, which is your characterization. Um, your thought on him kind of taking a run at you that way? or You know, uh, Peter is an opposition MLA. He's paid to be outraged. And yeah. I'm the mayor of a city that has to get along with this government. And I uh, took it upon myself to meet with Jim Lightbody, the CEO. And then I had a call with uh, David Eby on Friday evening. And just to reiterate that, uh, you know, we are disappointed about the fact there's not going to be a $50 million investment. But if they decide that they have other priorities in Kamloops that are more urgent than that, uh, then that's their business. What I wasn't going to uh, be uh, tolerating was an erosion of staff from uh, Kamloops to Vancouver. So we had a long talk about that. And there is an organic growth that goes on at BCLC. And I've been assured from both Jim Lightbody and from the minister that that organic growth will be accommodated here in Kamloops. So when I spoke with the minister, we talked about some of the vacant commercial space, particularly in the downtown, and there are floors of buildings that are vacant, and that uh, as they see themselves squeezed out of their headquarters, that uh, my expectation would be that they would be leasing that space and uh, accommodating those workers here in Kamloops. Okay, did he seem receptive to that sort of picture? Very much so, oh. and, that, and that's the plan. And the other interesting thing that the minister said is that, uh, and, and you know, we've always thought of ourselves as the poor cousins but in fact he says it's easier to recruit into Kamloops because the wage is the wage it doesn't change between Vancouver right. and Kamloops and your ability to live a much better lifestyle is is obviously here in Kamloops so uh, you know he has no problem uh, about recruiting and particularly recruiting tech jobs into Kamloops and you know I think we have to stop thinking of ourselves as the poor second cousins and recognize that we have a decided advantage here with the uh, lower cost of living affordable housing here in Kamloops and access to a whole bunch of recreational opportunities that really aren't there in Vancouver. All right. Uh, some other issues to throw in front of you. Uh, the Kamloops Public Market Cooperative has been pushing behind the scenes for a while now to figure out where to set up shop. I know they had the, what is currently now the KPMG downtown office, just uh, just the one block beside us here at NL. That went to KPMG, so that's a no-go. Now they're pitching this thing for Riverside Park, that kind of two-story structure. Um, 
uh, recent polls suggesting there's a pretty big split in opinion about the location. Uh, your thoughts on the location and when we might see this before council for any kind of a final say? Yeah, well, I mean, this is, is not a, a council matter at this point in no. time, uh, but, uh, you know, they have, uh, you know, floated the idea about the Riverside Park location, and that has really woken up that uh, battle of the past about the parkade, yeah. and it seems to be quite divisive, and uh, certainly Heritage House users and, and everyone else uh, that has a kind of this notion of a passive park at, at Riverside Park are really quite opposed to it. Uh, others are looking at it as an opportunity for uh, both commercial and tourist uh, development into the downtown. So, you know, they'll have to sort that out. Uh, the downtown plan that we are currently uh talking about with the public uh, really envisioned that there would be a downtown market in the uh, lot next to the Plaza Hotel between the uh, library TNRD building right. and the Plaza Hotel and uh, that sort of is another option and, and oh. that would make some sense as well. Yeah, that would be an interesting location because there's currently that's right on the street in front of that location is where the summertime food uh, farmers market sets up shop on occasion. Interesting. Um, last week's TNRD meeting you complained about ride sharing being roadblocked, uh, complained about the glacier pace that that's moving along and and I would tend to agree with you As a matter of fact I, I think that the uh, the blame can be evenly split between the previous government and the current one nobody seems to want to do this last place in North America where we do not have ride sharing what's what's your concern why why are you complaining about it well th there's there's a couple of reasons one is that uh, there is not enough taxi licenses to supply the need for rides in Kamloops and in there's shortages often at the airport there's shortages is certainly during the bar flush. So that's one problem. And the second problem is that, you know, the government is way behind the entrepreneurs because there are private guys with, you know, Billy Bob's ride service uh, mm -hmm. and, and they've got their uh, business cards out there and they're uh, doing all manner of kind of providing lifts to people out, out of bars. And I'm not convinced that that's the best nor safest way. So either Uber or Lyft or both would in my opinion, offer Kamloops citizens uh, much more selection would be safer and I think would help our economy. And, uh, you know, I don't want to blame this government or the last government. I just want them to get on with it. Right. I go to Calgary, I get an Uber to the airport. I have no problem with that. And it's half the price. So yeah. let's just get on with it for British Columbia. Uh, I found the violin music unsettling in the Billy Bob ride I had. But anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Performance Arts Center, uh, this concept, uh, there's not much new on that front. But I'm just kind of curious, uh, what's your thought as you see sort of the public reaction play out in, in letters to the local newspapers and editorials and that kind of thing? There seems to be some segment of naysayers and other people who are really excited about it. Any kind of sense in where the city's falling as you watch this public reaction? Yeah, you know, I think these are early days. Uh, we just heard from Ron and Ray Fawcett uh, a couple of weeks ago now so that uh, matters in the hands of our administration it was discussed at our strategic plan uh, and uh, our retreat that we had and that will be out in about six weeks in in terms of our vision for the next four years and uh, so you know there's a, a, a lot of controversy people that are suggesting that this should be totally self-financed versus those that see this as an amenity just like the tournament capital center so right. we can expect that but I, I think the bottom line uh, for from my perspective is that uh, people need to realize that there are two advantages to a performing arts center. One is that it can help us develop our local artistic talent here. Yeah. And secondly, it can help us attract uh, larger acts. And that, in turn, 
fills hotels, fills restaurants. It helps us in terms of the economy. So the arts uh, helps the economy. It is not this drain that some people have portrayed it as, and uh, people need to start looking at it in that context. Uh, any idea yet whether the city would donate the land that's currently the old Daily News building now, a parking lot, uh, which I don't think is the best use of the land. I don't think you do either. Does it, what do we do with that land? Yeah, they, you know, that, that's part of the discussion. Uh, you know, uh, what's our share? Uh, we're going to have to have a share in this, obviously. And, and is it going to be the land? Uh, you know, is it going to be some kind of tax deferral system? Is it going to be shared retail space? You know, those are kinds of things that need to, need to be discussed. The other thing is that this proposal is complex in that it allows us to free up the pavilion theater. So what does repurposing that look like? Uh, what about the Sagebrush Theater Agreement? Yeah. Is there an opportunity to work with Thompson Rivers University and the <coughs> school district on that? Uh, you know, so there's a number of, of irons in the fire in terms of this particular proposal. Okay, interesting. Uh, we'll have to call it a day with that. Ken, uh, council meeting next week, so we'll see you right here in this program uh, next Wednesday as well. So Looking cool. forward to it. <laughs> All right, there we go. Council Mayor Ken Christian. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show on Radio NL and pick it up on the other side of this commercial break. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. North Thompson Rail Terminals is planning a huge $10 million expansion of their Kootenai Way facility. The 27-hectare expansion will see the site become an intermodal port fitting into the major rail lines around Kamloops. Joining me to discuss this is the North Thompson Rail Terminals President, Corey Bitts. The federal government is uh, examining whether or not the project needs an environmental assessment or not. Uh, maybe just give me an idea of what you have planned out there and, and what the process is looking like in front of you between uh, now and, and getting it up and going. Okay, so uh, the rail terminal is uh, proposed uh, to uh, transload uh, commodities, uh, all different types of commodities as outlined in the project description. And uh, our plan is to build it over uh, a five to ten year period uh, in three phases. Where do you see the need coming from? Like what, uh, what was sort of the genesis of the idea? What did you sort of see out there as far as, okay, we need to do this because we need to accomplish what? Okay, well, I mean, historically, um, there's a lot of uh, um, opportunity in, the, uh, in, the, in the, the central part of British Columbia. Uh, with, and you don't have a lot of options um, to move your stuff to to either to port or or to uh, the U.S. interior, so uh, we see that there's uh, uh, a lot of incremental business. So that's new business uh, with the with the lumber, with uh, uh, different types of uh, lumber commodities, whether it's cut lumber, specialty lumber, uh, pellets, um, uh, uh, pulp. And uh, so we see that, you know, these uh, products are expanding uh, on the world market and in the domestic market. And when I say domestic, I mean Canada and the U.S. So we, we see some opportunities there, uh, immediate opportunities. We also see uh, other opportunities uh, possibly out of the Okanagan and also possibly out of mining. Uh, so that's uh, something that we're researching uh, right now to uh, to see what kind of interest there would be. 
Um, and then also there's the oppor other opportunities such as petrochemical, uh, diesel, gasoline, uh, um, NGLs, uh, these types of products that, you know, are coming by truck mostly into the interior, which would be much more efficient if they were coming by rail uh, and then moved from truck uh, from a central location like Canloops uh, to, uh, you know, to all the outlying areas, uh, you know, within a couple hundred miles or, or 300 miles or so from here. Right. Um, any idea roughly sort of what the, uh, what the jobs and or economic potential is for, for the local area if this project goes ahead? Yeah, yeah. so um, what we're looking at right now uh, is we're, we're contemplating uh, in phase one, uh, which we're going to build this year, uh, we're looking to say that we're going to have 20 full-time jobs uh, within uh, two, within two years uh, of uh, starting up. So I expect that when we start up, we'll probably have somewhere around uh, uh, maybe 13 full-time jobs. And, uh, and from there, we'll, we'll add as we, as we add more business. Right, okay. Uh, do you see this being in sort of competition with or working alongside some of the other ideas in the region? I know, I believe it's in Ashcroft where they're, where they're working on sort of an inland port there. Uh, well, we would be doing uh, uh, something similar. So um, what, we have right, what we have right now is, uh, is there is a couple of other transload-type uh, terminals that are doing uh, some, something similar. But they're location-wise, they're inferior, and, uh, and they're not uh, connected directly with CN, which uh, has the best network in North America. Perfect. Uh, now, as far as the process itself, obviously the federal government seems to have some kind of a role here, and you don't yet know if this needs an environmental assessment or not. So as far as the process itself, any idea roughly what kind of a timeline you're looking at between now and, and getting things rolling? Okay, well, it's uh, uh, the reason that uh, the federal government, or SIA, is involved is because the criteria, uh, one of the criteria for a SIA review is uh, if you're building six, uh, more than six rail tracks. So we're building 13 rail tracks in our phase one. So that's the reason that SIA uh, we have to put the project description to SIA for their review uh, because it's a regulatory requirement. Okay, so it's not a major hiccup or anything from your viewpoint. Uh, well, it's you know it's one just one more from my perspective. It's one more uh, regulatory requirement that we need to uh, check the box on. Right. Okay. Uh, anything else you want to put on the record while I got you? Um. Well, like I say, it's uh, we're planning multi multiple commodities, not just uh, lumber and and uh, and diesel and and what have you. So uh, as we uh, as we pick up our customer base, we certainly we certainly want to get into other uh, other types of uh, transloading, such as uh, intermodal and uh, container stuffing. Perfect. I guess one last question before I let you go. Uh, I know there's been some issues raised 
uh, on a number of levels around rail capacity, whether it's, you know, wheat farmers looking to get uh, wheat to market or, or in this, some cases, oil out of Alberta. I mean, we only have so much rail lines and so many rail cars. Is is that a concern from your perspective at all or no? Uh, no. The, the reality is that I'm, I'm from the, the railway background where I worked uh, almost 40 years. And um, there is... Uh, Depending on times of the year, yes, there can be some constraints, especially taking uh, uh, grain to port, just because uh, crops today are as much as 30 or 40 percent more than than what was previously done. And we're not talking uh, 40 years ago, we're talking 10 years ago, and that's to do with a lot of the hybrid and uh, and the improvements in, in grain uh, growing and uh, and seed uh, plant uh, um, productivity. So the, when you're talking railways, uh, rail structure in railways is uh, is big money, and it's uh, not something that's easily uh, expansions are are you know from from CN side where I came from, you know they they're doing over a billion dollars in capital investment every year. And, and they still can't keep up. So uh, it's, it's big business, but it's also uh, big machinery and big equipment. So uh, going back to your question about do I see some restrictions on this, um, I don't see that, uh, that there'll be huge restrictions. If anything is going to the port from here, it's, it's short. It would actually uh, reduce uh, some of the trucking issues in Vancouver and on the highways, and anything that's going domestic, uh, this is the CN's main line, so um, this will move um, any traffic that's domestic would be, this is the fastest way out for sure. That was North Thompson Rail Terminal's President Corey Bitts talking about that huge rail expansion plan just to our north. We'll take a quick break now on the Woodford Show before diving back into the spending controversy at the B.C. Legislature. Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Thank you for tuning in and listening to The Woodford Show. We're now going to turn our attention back to the spending controversy unfolding at the B.C. Legislature and the ultimate fate of the currently suspended clerk, Craig James, and Sergeant-at-Arms, Gary Lenz. Joining me to discuss is NDP Surrey Guilford MLA, member of LAMSI, and prior to his political career, a longtime RCMP officer, Gary Begg. First and foremost, uh, this has been an ongoing controversy with uh, the Speaker and the suspension, of course, of Craig James and Gary Lenz, uh, with a lot of sort of mystery about what was going on behind the scenes. I don't know to what extent uh, this, what we saw yesterday, overflows into what the RCMP may or may not be doing. But what we saw yesterday was certainly a bit of a bombshell. So first and foremost, I mean, your reaction after going through the 76 pages and seeing what I think is fair to say is some pretty outlandish spending and behaviors alleged here. Well, I think I, like every British Columbian, was disturbed at uh, the allegations that have been made and are contained uh, in the report. It's just very disheartening uh, as a taxpayer of British Columbia and as an elected MLA in British Columbia to read about this kind of um, activity uh, going on, uh, particularly as it relates to what is essentially public money, the misuse, the abuse 
the bullying, some of the tactics that have gone on uh, are very disturbing, which obviously is why we, we took such swift and decisive action to uh, do our best to ensure that it can't ever happen again. And to that end, I mean, there's a, there's a, some uh, some different avenues available here. Uh, first and foremost, we're going to have an audit to determine what's going on, but there's no terms of reference on that yet. Uh, in your opinion, I mean, where do you think the scope should be and how far back should it go in terms of years? Well, the uh, I, I think in relative terms, the uh, scope of the audit should be unfettered. In other words, that we should allow auditors, forensic auditors, who are used to doing their job, free and open access to uh, everything that they deem appropriate in their professional opinion. Now, as to how far it should go back, uh, we know, of course, that this is something that has apparently been going on for a great length of time. So, uh, I think Two, we will seek the advice of the auditors on how far they think uh, it should go back. But in my mind, it should go back um, to at least the time in which the uh, current uh, clerk was appointed to his position because there is every reason to believe that uh, this activity is historic and has gone on, gone on uh, for a long period of time. I should say as well that uh, the report that we have speaks to a culture that has been created over a long period of time. So uh, I would say that we should go back, and certainly if asked uh, by the auditors, my recommendation w would be that we definitely go back to at least the time when the current clerk uh, was appointed to his position. Uh, one of the interesting aspects out of this, and, and perhaps you can shed a little bit of light with your with your past with the RCMP, is uh, as we look at these allegations, and again, whatever the RCMP are investigating, that's still a bit of a mystery to us. But as you look at these allegations, my my question is: at the end of the day, is this an oversight, a slap on the wrist, uh, like okay, this got out of control, but we need to tighten up the rules situation, or do you potentially see some actual chances that there's some something in here that could result in criminal charges? I'm very confident that there will be criminal charges laid as a result of uh, some of this activity. It's important as well, I think, to recognize that some of this uh, will be just bad uh, business practice uh, and um, malfeasance on the part of the implicated uh, individuals. But in any event, I think that uh, this is uh, behavior and activity and performance that in any workplace would be deemed to be unacceptable and inappropriate. Uh, so I'm confident that the police and the courts will deal with those activities that are deemed to be illegal and unlawful, and uh, that we will deal with the rest. And then that brings uh, Mr. James and Mr. Lenz to light here because uh, they have to have something, uh, some sort of due process. So I believe that part of the motion that you guys dealt with yesterday was to actually hear back from them, uh, hear what they have to say about this, and, and fair enough. But at what point, as far as a timeline, do you see this thing going as far as continuing the suspension with pay versus, okay, we've heard their defense, let's look at the big picture, and we need to discuss the possibility of termination? Well, I think that's um, imminent uh, as we speak. I think that we've committed uh, as part of the Lamsey Committee to taking a look at their, the, their continued uh, employment based purely on the information that has been surfaced by uh, the speaker. 
I am anxious to hear if they have a defense or have uh, an alternate view of some of the activities as outlined. But in the absence of such an alternate view or defense, I think, uh, again, you will see that we will move swiftly and uh, decisively to deal with their employment status. Can you see any way, Gary, that they return to their jobs, or is that just, that's just out of the question no matter what happens now? I would say that um, unless there is evidence to the contrary, the activities that have been alleged are, uh, purely as a matter of business practice would not be acceptable uh, to any well-thinking individual and that we would take uh, steps to terminate their employment. Okay. Um, as far as this particular behavior, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's just sort of put on the table here for us to digest, but uh, is this as simple as an audit, an outside auditor coming in and, and then cranking down the rules, or, or is this a little more robust than that as far as, uh, I'm sure there must be, if this is all true, there's got to be some ramifications and some morale issues and some hard feelings among the rest of the legislature staff, so I think this is a bit of a robust ball to deal with. Well, and I think you're exactly right, and it's very perceptive of you to, uh, to isolate that. I think uh, this speaks to a systemic uh, issue of a culture that has been created. And as you and I both know, it's very hard uh, to, to change a culture of an organization. It speaks, I think, to a lack of uh, leadership on the part of the senior officers uh, of the legislature. I think it speaks to a, a lack of um, proper uh, documented oversight and control, which resulted in uh, us being where we are today. So that's why, by the way, we not only seek an audit, we're also commissioning a workplace review with human resources professionals who can look at the organization, the reporting lines, for example, to see that they're clear, uh, employees' understanding of what their obligation is with uh, public monies, things that you and I would take for granted that everyone uh, would adhere to perhaps haven't been uh, stressed enough in the uh, culture of the organization. Uh, this, as you know, a culture is built up over years, and this goes back over, over many years. Um, and I, I think it's significant that uh, the initial reaction, for example, of the Liberals was to work very hard to discredit the Speaker. Um, and you have to ask now, in light of this report, why would they do that? Why would they uh, vilify publicly um, a person who was trying to expose a, a, a system that wasn't working the way it should? So there perhaps may be others in the organization, other employees in the organization who feel or have felt that uh, it's uh, not safe for them to denounce such practices. So in a global sense, I think we want to, uh, uh, if sunlight is the best uh, disinfectant, we want to ensure that there's a very clear and transparent process within the organization. Uh, that uh, encourages people to uh, follow their moral uh, sense, to do the right thing and not fear that there will be reprisals or incrimination, intimidation or bullying activity uh, that will take place against them. And to create that uh, culture probably requires some fairly transformative change in procedure and practice and perhaps personnel. Mm. 
Interesting. Uh, just on that subject of, you know, sunlight being the ultimate solution here, um, one of the weird things about the legislature itself and sort of the ministry under the speaker is that it's immune from freedom of information requests and there's a level of transparency and sort of public scrutiny that's not there that would be for, say, the Ministry of Transportation, Ministry of Environment, etc. Um, is it time to kind of open up that thing to more accountability to allow journalists like myself to file freedom of information and allow the public some kind of oversight, you know, uh, in this whole situation? It's certainly time that we take a look at uh, the um, uh, situation that surrounds the Speaker, an independent officer of the legislature. And uh, my starting position is always that we should uh, release uh, as much information and be as transparent as possible. And uh, unless there are good reasons to the contrary, and there may very well be in certain situations where certain information cannot be released or cannot be released immediately. I think in the absence of information that that exists, we should be looking at every opportunity we have uh, to making uh, this office too transparent and um, the activities in that office be uh, open on a regular basis to members of the public. That was Gary Begg, former RCMP officer, current NDP MLA for Surrey Guilford, who happens to sit on the Lambsey Committee, which is in the middle of this whole speaker brouhaha. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, Health Canada has done away with the four food groups of our youth. We'll discuss that next. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Health Canada has updated its food guide, and there seems to be some pretty hefty changes. Joining me to discuss what they got right and what they got wrong is Dalhousie University Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Sylvain Charlebois. Uh, Sylvain, as you know, uh, Health Canada is out with a new food guide, and I guess uh, the four food groups of my youth, nothing sacred these days from change, the four food groups of my youth are no more. Uh, what do you think about this latest iteration? Well, it's... Uh it's a change. Uh, yeah, most people actually would remember the four food groups. Uh, in fact, that's probably all they can remember, uh, let alone following the food guide. You're learning in school, then you left school, and you move on with your life. That's pretty much what the Cane Food Guide means to most people. But uh, I think uh, Health Canada wants to change that, and, uh, and that's why they're, they're, they're making the food guide a little bit more relevant to... Uh, to um, uh, the average Canadian, especially uh, urban Canadians. Uh, in the past, it was, it was more about showcasing uh, what we grow, what we do in Canada. Uh, and instead of actually promoting products, this new guide is actually promoting nutrients like fibers and protein. So it's a, it's a big shift. Yeah, and one of the things from uh, a meat-eating guy like me uh, saw there is that there's a, a distinct lack of focus on meat, and now protein consists of nuts and things like that. also seems to be a more of a focus on portions and some of the, I don't know, the hipper language of, of food these days. Yeah, absolutely. So meat is, uh, is part of uh, a group called proteins, and in, in that group, of course, uh, uh, you'll find a variety of different sources of, uh, of, of proteins. Uh, if you actually look at the picture uh, in the guide, uh, it's a quarter of a, of a dish, uh, of a plate. And in, in that quarter, you'll find uh, all sorts of different uh, ingredients like almonds, 
uh, lentils, uh, you'll find chickpeas, and if you look really, really closely, you'll find a little bowl of yogurt and uh, some uh, some cubes. Uh, they may actually look like wood, but actually they're it's beef. So it tells you uh, the, about the diff- about the approach that Health Canada is taking on proteins. So tell me what works about this guide. I mean, you made a reference to the guide of our youth that the only thing we really remember from it is the four food groups. Uh, obviously, Health Canada wants us to eat healthier. Uh, does this grab the public's attention? Does it approach it the right way? Is this going to make a dent in how Canadians eat? Um, it, it Only time will tell, but my guess is that it will. Um, I mean, the Canadian the, the food guide has been institutionalized in this country, and that's why we know it. Now, most people uh, have chosen not to follow it for a variety of reasons. Uh, so as you, as you institutionalize a new message, uh, things are going to be different, I suspect, over time. Not, not tomorrow, but over time, I suspect that there's going to be some, some major differences. I'll give you an example with, with schools. When I grew up, uh, we were given a uh, little... Uh, little dose of milk every morning you know uh school and milk went to came went together now with this new food guide i'm not so sure school boards will be keen to serve milk to kids anymore you may actually end up seeing kids eat uh, chickpeas and lentils and other stuff like that so it is going to be a new world when it comes to food policies in general as a result of this shift today I, I fascinating. I note uh, among uh, among your comments here in this in the release I'm looking at is, I mean, one of the food movements is buy local. There's lots of things about the hundred mile diet, uh, that kind of thing. I mean, you go into restaurants nowadays, uh, more often than not, it's going to be you know they're going to get a spiel about how they source most things local, make local, all that kind of stuff. But you make the point that this guide is sort of at odds with the with the domestic buying local movement. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you look at uh, the 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 architecture of the new food guide, there's lots of components that really you can't find in Canada. You have to basically import uh, some of these products, and 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 there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But when you think about price volatility, for example, it makes uh, many people a little bit more vulnerable. Uh, look at fruits and vegetables, which is basically half of what we're supposed to be eating now. Uh, well. We import a lot of fruits and vegetables, especially this time of year, and so and and prices do fluctuate. I'll give you an example: lettuce is up thirty nine percent from uh, compared to last year. Thirty nine percent—that's a lot of money. And so, if you're actually if you have a federal agency encouraging people to consume more of these products. Uh, we should make sure that we have enough capacity to, to feed our own or to at least uh, feed a significant portion of the market. Um, it's been a while since this thing's been updated. Uh, do you think that this is something, I mean, just considering food trends and multiculturalism and uh, the different knowledge we gain over the years as different things come out, okay, listen, we this is better for us, this is not, that kind of stuff. Uh, do we need a more regular um, revamping or assessment of the food guide as opposed to, you know, 15 or 20 years, perhaps every handful? Well, that's, that's why today... Uh, uh, I mean, the reveal from El Canada felt like uh, they were actually going to be telling us uh, where Cleopatra's tomb is located. I mean, it's, it's, it, it was too much of a big deal, I think. If we actually review 
the guide every five years, like most uh, Western uh, countries do, uh, a day like today wouldn't be as big of a deal. I mean, it's just part of the process, and we need to adjust and adapt. And so I think that's probably why we've talked about the food guide so much today. Uh, really, I think we need to make sure that, uh, that uh, the food guide remains uh, modern, connected, and, and relevant. And I know that you're you're not entirely a big fan of the language the food guide uses. You use words like uh, de- demeaning and trite. Uh, what, what's your beef with the language? <laughs> so, uh, on, in terms of ingredients, uh, I was actually I think it's a step forward. Uh, it's 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 uh, when you when you actually look at the behavioral aspect of of the guide itself, uh, celebrating food, be careful of food ads. I think it was a bit condescending, to be honest with you, and, and even patronizing. Uh, I, I felt, as I was reading the food guide, uh, I felt uh, that it was a bit of an overreach uh, from from Ask Canada. I mean, just stick to food, stick stick to health. Don't necessarily stick to. Con- don't go t- uh, and look at psychology and uh, and consumer behavior. Let let somebody else figure that out. <laughs> was there anything in there that caught you by surprise or you went, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. They're, they're promoting this or they're approaching it from this particular perspective. Well, one thing that wasn't talked about all that much today, I suspect, uh, I haven't been following the news today because I've been t- talking to a lot of, uh, of journalists like yourself. Uh, I would say that, uh, that, uh, they actually are coming out with two different versions of the guy. One for, all of us and uh, one for professionals and and this is refreshing so because professionals really need uh, more data more information and they need to understand where the rationale is coming from uh, but for us I mean all we need is are, are the goods uh, I mean the simple version of the guide so we can actually move on with our lives so that was a good approach and uh, it, it wasn't done before but now it is done and uh, so that's why the guide is much more flexible adaptable to who you are how much you know about food and, and i suspect that canada will gain from that oh that is interesting when you say professionals you mean like chefs and sort of the food experts or, or something more broader than that well people in industry but i i, I actually uh I, I was thinking of, of dietitians and nutritionists that the, the ones that are really uh, trying to help uh canes that are you know need help yeah, no kidding. Do you do you anticipate this could change some eating habits? I mean, there's a lot of uh, critics out there say, listen, we're you know heading over to the local uh, grocery store and hitting the chips aisle and drinking too much pop and hitting the fast food and that kind of thing. Is this enough? Do you think for people look at it and they go, you know what, I, I need to make a change. I'm going to cut back on the meat. I'm going to adjust my eating habits. Yeah, I think so. I, so this is where I'm coming from. Uh, from from. If you look at supply-side economics, uh, people will eat what they have access to, uh, simply put. And so if you have grocers out there starting to adapt and change, people will actually start buying these products. Uh, we need to eat at <laughs> the bottom line. And, of course, they have this policy now, this guide, justifying changes that they were thinking about. And, and based on a study we just did at Dalhousie recently, plant-based dieting is becoming more and more popular veganism is now socially normalized so there's 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 a lot of stuff going on in the marketplace and, and grocers will uh, will want to adapt and and the food guide is another excuse to 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 make changes 
All right. Well, now you got me rethinking my steak dinner I had planned for tonight. But uh. well, I'm not. <laughs> well, keep some for me. Yeah. So, Van, thanks for taking a few moments to chat with us. Uh, really, really appreciate that. All right. Take care. There you go. That's uh, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy with Dalhousie University, Sylvain Charlebois. And that's it for the Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL tomorrow. 1400 Clearwater, 107.1 Chuswap from CHNL and Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.